Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Nancy Spiro. My first guest is Julie Alt, the curator of Nancy Spiro Paper Mirror. It's at MoMA PS1 through June 23rd. Spiro was a pioneering feminist artist whose work often addressed contemporary events and the representation of women across cultures, all in an attempt to present histories in which women were protagonists. Paper Mirror includes over 100 works that Spiro made over six decades to the first major exhibition of her work in the U.S. since her death in 2009. Julie Alt is an artist whose work frequently consists of curatorial activity as artistic practice. She was a co-founder of the art collective Group Material, and her work has been exhibited in the Sao Paulo and Whitney Biennials. Last year, she was awarded a MacArthur Genius Fellowship. On the second segment, historian and curator Linda S. Ferber on the American Pre-Raphaelites Radical Realists at the National Gallery of Art. One quick note before we get to this week's show, as you know, we usually have virtually all of the images of the art we discuss on each program up on the show page at manpodcast.com. This week we have several Nancy Spiros, but not nearly as many as we would like. VAGA, the art image licensing agency, wouldn't send them to us and frankly didn't explain why they wouldn't. Julie Alt, after the break. Special Announcement. The Modern Art Notes podcast is returning to the road for a live audience taping with Sheila Hicks at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas. On May 11th, the Nasher opens a new site-specific exhibition of Hicks's work. The show will be in both the garden and the lower level of the Nasher. For the outdoor work, Hicks will play with the linear man-made grid of the Nasher garden by installing durable, color-fast, pigmented fiber along the garden's walking paths, walls, and seating areas. In the lower level gallery, she will install new textile sculptures that will invite viewers to consider the relationships between outside and inside, high art and craft, and more. A live audience taping with Sheila Hicks at 11 a.m. on May 11th at the Nasher Sculpture Center. Hope to see you there. Experience some of today's most exciting indie bands at Off the 405, the Getty's annual outdoor summer concert series. On Saturday, May 18th, Los Angeles-based Sasami brings her playful and joyful songs to the Getty, for an evening of live music amid stunning architecture and sunset views. Learn more at getty.edu 360. And we're back. Julie Alt, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Hi, Tyler. Thanks for having me. The first work in your exhibition chronology is a Nancy Sparrow work of the most traditional subject in Western art history, a mother of child, a mother and child, uh, and in the most traditional medium, oil on canvas. It's from 1956. It precedes everything else in the show by four years, and it's really the last time we see anything like it in the exhibition, either in terms of subject or medium. Is it as traditional an object uh, and point of address as the subject might suggest? And why was it important for you to start with it? Actually, I don't see any of Spiro's work as traditional in spirit. And that work and some of the early, early paintings in the exhibition from the late 50s and early 60s, they do take on a traditional form. She had been working with oil on canvas in school and after she did her studies, she'd been, she worked on oil on canvas exclusively for about 15 to 20 years. But to me, the subject matter also being fairly traditional, the way Spiro skewed it or, or filtered it through a kind of violent intensity that you see in her, 
her works did have to do with mother and children or mother and child. It seemed to me there's a split that you see already in that, or a splitting, a rupturing within her practice that you see already in those very first works in the exhibition. Immediately after that work, we have what I think anybody who knows Sparrow's work is familiar with, works on paper, works that don't use oil paint as a primary medium, but are made from from gouache and ink. As you worked on the show, how important did you come to consider Spiro's turn away from oil and acrylic and canvas and toward paper and gouache and ink and the like? Well, I considered that extremely important. And actually, the exhibition is is organized around these key shifts, these big ideological, formal, and production shifts and media shifts that Spiro makes over the 50 years of practice. And that first shift is a rebellion. You know, she's been working with Olin Canvas and she's been, she was really dissatisfied and felt a dislike of what Olin Canvas was representing at that time in the early 60s and the kind of domination of male painters and abstraction particularly at that point. But her turn to paper was, I think, a very productive shift for her. And it was also a symbolic rebellion to choose to work on paper, which at that time, and perhaps still to some degree, is lower in the hierarchy of artistic media and has a vulnerability. When she first started working on paper and showing her work on paper for many years of that, she was pinning the works, the paper, directly to the walls. So she was even highlighting its fragility. And and let's say at that time, something might be like a female association to, to paper as opposed to oil on canvas. But she still thought of the, the work she did as painting. So those first works on paper, the first major body of work on paper she did beginning in 1966, was her response, angry response, to the American, the American role in Vietnam, in the war in Vietnam. And so it was a combination of a formal rebellion or media rebellion, a production rebellion, and a, an embrace of a content that was violent in a sense and, and expressing her rage against the U.S. military incursions in, and violations and cruelty in, in Vietnam. But it was the first of several key movements within her practice, which over time I see as a working towards a kind of self-liberation from containment, um, whether that's formal or content, and a, wor- a working out into space, into exhibition space and and breaking her own frames. So I think the work move to paper was symbolically and in actuality, I mean, it's a momentous move for her. Since you, you, you mentioned the Vietnam era work, as you note in the chronology and the catalog, and I want to pause for just a second to to give a special shout out to the chronology. It's not the usual dry, inert chronology we we typically get in scholarly catalogs. It includes Sparrow's voice and and dozens of of quotations from her, and it makes the chronology a much more useful and interesting and readable 
almost page turnable document, and, and I really, I really liked it. But, but in the chronology, uh, you quote the art historian Deborah Frizzell as noting that Spiro's 1965 contribution to L.A. Peace Tower, which was a painting of a U.S. helicopter killing machine, as being really pivotal, as being the catalyst for the next decade of Spiro's work for the war series that comes next. Did the Vietnam War help Spiro forward, help her find what her art would be about and its subjects, or was that already happening in her work? I mean, I think both. It was it was happening. There's what proceeded in the work on canvas. There were moments when she was in Paris and doing doing the so-called black paintings. There were moments where she would suddenly do what she called fuck you works and anger and rage came out in the form of of nightmare monsters and and words, you know, saying merde and and fuck you, etc. And so there was this rage that I believe, you know, in part came from her isolation and probably was innate in some ways to her understanding of being a, a woman artist, a woman figurative artist at that time within a bourgeois culture. And so she was she was looking for she was constantly looking, I think, for for how to bring that, how to formulate her voice and bring it forward more, and and bring it forward freely to exercise her voice freely. And I think the the Vietnam works or the war series, as she called them, were a real opportunity to do that. If you keep in mind that it was her first extensive work on paper, that were works in themselves, not plans for paintings, etc. And it was a first extensive work on paper, and they were done very quickly. She talked about making the war series in a very fast and furious fashion, almost as if they were broadsides and not, you know, precious paintings, which they are at this point. Too. But she thought of them as something that was done quickly and expressed the the rage and the violence that she felt and the anger towards coming back to the U.S. from several years and living in France and and seeing what was going on and being implicated by being, you know, as a U.S. citizen, being implicated and wanting to take action. And if you also keep in mind that she was part of a, of a context, her husband, Leon Golub and Spiro were part of a group of people, but they were very central in a group of people, artists in New York, that joined forces to protest the the Vietnam War and to protest American involvement and American interventions, but also activism, cultural activism. So I think in a certain sense, Spiro was, this was the, let's say, a forceful beginning of finding her voice and yes i think vietnam the vietnam war and her reactions to that helped her to enact in her work this voice but then we see it again happening uh soon after the war works as they merge kind of seamlessly into her obsession and unwitting collaboration with arto but i'm jumping ahead um the years overlap a bit, so. <laughs> With the war series, you know, it's interesting you mentioned the L.A. Peace Tower because 
her work, which I, I haven't found an image of it, but Chriselle had described it as a giant insect-like killing machine, as a helicopter. And when Spiro started the war series, she began with bombs, anthropomorphizing bombs, turning them into human torsos, some male, some female, with the male bombs with erect penises and, you know, things spewing out from them. And she worked with bombs, the bombs a lot. But then at a certain point she decided, and I couldn't tell you the year, but she decided that the helicopter was really the the symbolic icon of the American war in Vietnam. And so she made many images in that in the war series that had the helicopter, you know, doing doing violence on on people and and the helicopter blades. I mean, they're quite her works. If you've looked at the war series, they're quite visceral. Which reminds me that you know, going back to mother and children, and mother and child, and some of her early work when Spiro and Golub were living in Paris, Spiro became a mother and um, had three children three sons. And during that period where she's doing the war series, she talked about how she wanted to protect her sons, her children. And she was somewhat embarrassed by the intense, violent content of her art at the time, and that she would cover the figures to the degree that she could. She would cover them when the children passed by so that they wouldn't see what she was working on. And I I found that really interesting that concern that also maternal concern was something that she felt quite strongly in relation to to the war in Vietnam. You mentioned the uh, the gendered bombs, if you will. The, the, the show includes uh, not just Atom Bomb from 1966, but works titled Female Bomb um, and Male Bomb One, and we'll try to have images of those on manpodcast.com, as well as images of a number of paintings that feature helicopters. Often she doesn't just include a helicopter, she includes a specific reference to to nationalism, such as in Helicopter Pilot and Eagle, in which we see a helicopter in the top half of a sheet and in the bottom half of the sheet, uh, kind of the silhouette of, of the head and beak of an eagle. By my count, there are, and, and kind of depending on, on how you count one work, there are 45 or 46 works in the show from from the Vietnam years from the from the Vietnam decade, which is which is a lot, and I I, I thought that was uh, just a really interesting curatorial decision, and I wonder if you found I mean you 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 knew Spiro when when she was still with us, I w- I wonder what it was like for you going through her work of the Vietnam years and what you came to learn about about Nancy Spiro herself or or about the oeuvre as coming from that period. It's interesting. I mean, let me go back a little just to say that, or step back to talk about the exhibition a bit, that the paper mirror, Nancy Spiro paper mirror is, in my view, not a retrospective, but it, I mean, technically not a retrospective, but it does take up the, as source, her full career of work. Um, and it does begin in the early works and goes, this works included from the, you know, from some of her last works made in the later 2000s and 2007, I think. But I consider it something of an opinionated or subjective exhibition in the sense that I, 
I mean, another, a totally different exhibition, of course, could have been done of, or can be done of Spiro's work, also drawn from the same material. But I suppose I was drawn maybe disproportionately to some of the the more violent and angry and psychologically entwined I don't know what I don't want to call it the dark you know part but it something you know I was drawn to the subterranean and the her expression of rage against society and certainly against war and so there is a lot of there's a lot of that kind of material also Spiro dealing with women as a term that she used often, victimage, or dealing with victimage of women and cruelty towards women historically. So there's there's a lot of that in the exhibition. I feel like I learned I learned constantly from Spiro's work. So and all of it. I learned from the from the war paintings and Artaud series, I suppose the two different Artaud series. I think I started to apprehend more the depths of Spiro's despair and rage and and the beauty of how she enacted that in her art, how she gave voice to that and created a language, of a figurative language, I think, that obviously I feel very strongly about now, you know, that it's contemporary work. I, I consider the exhibition also to be, as much as, it, of course, it is a historical exhibition, I consider it a contemporary exhibition because Spiro's voice, as expressed through all of, all of the work in the exhibition and all the different time periods embodied in that, is very much alive and speaking to us in the current tense, I think. Yeah, she never lost interest or faith if if that's the right word in the in the figure and and that's quite a commitment for an artist who was was formed in 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 the 50s and 60s and who emerged in the 50s and 60s the the years after vietnam were 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 a time of real upheaval for spiro her studio burns the fire destroyed many works and she decided to make a focus on women as the subject for her work core to what she did. Is there a moment at which you see that in the work, or is there a moment in the work at which you found yourself noticing that such a shift had really taken place and had given her, I don't know what the phrase would be, but 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 caused to, to, to move on from the war? Well, between... Between after her Vietnam work or war series, she moved into a four-year, very intensive dialogue, if you will, with Antoine Artaud and the French poet. And that work, I think, we see it's done between 1969 and, and 70, 71 or 72. There's... I think that's where she really comes to voice in an even more cogent way in the sense that she's she's developing for, and inventing forms for herself that will work and so she's she's starting to collage a lot and to paint figures that she then collages onto the papers that she's using as ground and she's also starting to use text a lot at that point with the Artaud works first uh, copying Artaud's words 
by hand, but then turning to the bulletin typewriter and typewriting, writing out a lot of Artaud's words and and verse and writing and and bringing that into the works themselves. And so she's she's also during the Artaud years, after the Artaud paintings, which take place for a couple of years, she makes a very a very important break, an even more important break, I think, with uh, the convention of painting, which is to leave behind the idea of the conventional, nicely sized landscape or portrait scale formatted work. And she wants to expand further into space. And at that point, she makes what later become the Codex Artaud works. But she starts gluing papers together from because she traditionally was using 20 by 28 or 20 by 26 inch paper and she starts gluing them together to make something like a scroll or what will become her scrolls and freezes as a way of of expanding into into space some and i think that goes along with that expansion into space and claiming more space for herself as an artist even though she doesn't have if we keep in mind at that point, she doesn't have much of an audience. She doesn't have possibilities to exhibit her work, but she's still expanding into space with the work and the scale shift is happening. And I think this goes, it then feeds into what happens is her, almost concurrently is moving into the feminist sphere and the women's movement, as it was called at the time, and joining groups like War, Women Artists in Revolution in 69-70, and then the Ad Hoc Committee for Women Artists, and and eventually in 1972 being part of a group of women who founded AIR Gallery, the first women's cooperative gallery in, in the States, or in New York, I should say. I'm not sure if it was in the States. But all this is happening at once, this coming to voice, this expanding into space, this finding a discourse that she relates to and being part of a dialogue of women artists. And and then suddenly in 1974, she makes a break with Artaud, or she made a break with Artaud actually before that, but in 74, she suddenly makes a shift, which is somewhat momentous and says, from here on out, I'm only working with images of women. And and that women, women, woman as protagonist would become her modality from there on. And I can't say honestly to speak more directly to your question of what did I see in the work? Is there a specific moment? I can see that with a distance now and having done the research and done the exhibition. But at the time, for instance, in the 80s and 90s, as I was experiencing Spiro's work as a audience member and as a as a colleague and and friend it wasn't so obvious to me you know that this world I mean it was all Spiro you know whatever I saw of Spiro had seeds of of you know her constant let's say personal revolution so the the move into woman as protagonist and exclusively those images, the images that then she occupied her for the rest of her 
Life almost, I think. I mean, I, I can't locate it, but it did happen around 75, 74, 75. There's a, a series, two series of some examples of series of works I have in the exhibition from 74, which were was a very transitional period for her. As you said, her studio had burned. She lost a lot of work. She was also finished with Arto, wanting to move into something else, but wasn't didn't have it yet. What is she moving into? What is occupying her? And so she did the series that still was working heavily with text and image collage called The Hours of the Night and also Licit X. So there's examples of those transitions in the exhibition, but then soon after, 1976, when she's made this decision to focus on women, imagery of women and historically images of women, she moves first into two works, Torture of Women and Torture of Women in Chile, Torture in Chile, and then into Notes in Time, the work, the extensive work, 200-foot-long work that is in the exhibition that's part of MoMA's collection. And so we had the opportunity to ex- exhibit it in Paper Mirror. But I think the the break and the evidence of that shift we see it happen over time in a number of ways in in terms of the the visual subject matter and the figure but also in terms of her the research that she's doing at the in the late 70s and focusing that research into very text heavy text and image and collage heavy scroll works that have to do with the history of women I want to come back to the the scroll works in a moment. You mentioned Torture in Chile. That's 1974. Torture of Women, 1976. I don't have the dimensions of Torture in Chile in front of me, but Torture of Women is 125 feet long. And, and it's not in your show. It was published in a terrific book by Siglio Press a couple, oh, maybe a decade ago now. In, in those works and in works in the mid-'80s, Spiro is interested in obviously torture and in U.S. engagement in Central and South America. Is there a continuity between the Vietnam works and uh, the works that address torture and American imperialism in the Americas? Yes, I I think there is. I mean, and it's a a continuity that gets picked up throughout Spiro's practice and career. And, I mean, her, her working for social justice and against imperialism and against, I mean, against, she was anti-war her whole life. And um, the continuity is evident in, in the works, certainly torture, the torture works and her, her deep looking into cruelty towards women over time. And particularly in those works in a contemporary way in Torture of Women was in a contemporary way drawing heavily from Amnesty International's report on torture. Oral histories, too, yeah. Yes, and they're quite, as you mentioned, that fantastic book that Siglio pressed I mean, that is a, it's a publication version of the work that really makes the work beautifully present. And it's very tough to, you know, to read these oral histories and to be inside of, of that work. 
An interesting sidebar is that Spiro originally planned the torture of women done in 76, was it? And and Notes in Time, which was completed in 79, but she worked on it for three years, that that was conceived of as one work. But Torture of Women was 125 feet, and Notes in Time is over 200 feet. And at some point, she decided to separate them. And we, uh, to separate them because it had become such an unwieldy project. And even at 200 feet, it's a, you know, it's a difficult or one needs the right conditions to be able to exhibit Notes in Time. And Notes in Time includes sections that are repetitions almost of, or repeated sections from Torture of Women. So you see that thread of victimage and cruelty towards women historically coming into Notes in Time as well. You mentioned the scroll as as form. Why does Spiro develop an interest in in the scroll as as a form, and what does it allow her to do? Well, the the scroll and freeze formats, and also I don't have the exact word for it, but she also made these large hangs that are vertical, like towers almost, and put them together to make massive works, or as she called them at some point, ephemeral monuments. I think by starting to put these, put the individual papers together and come up with these scroll and freeze-like forms, it allows her to expand into space, but it also is a way, it goes hand in hand with another development, a methodological development in her work also in the mid-70s, is that she had, by then, was feeling the quite strongly the symptoms of rheumatoid arthritis and was having trouble, you know, with her hands to do the small figures, that paint the small figures she had been painting and collaging and working with, and the bulletin typewriter, et cetera, and the letterpress block type. So she in the mid-70s, was working with a printer, and through a discussion with that printer, came upon the idea of translating her drawings into zinc plates so that she would be able to print from them and work with repetition and recycling images and figures. And so that, the the combination of the scroll and freeze-like extensive format with the new printing technique that she brings into the work. And we see that grows and takes over. I mean, that becomes her operative mode for for decades is to work with these, these plates that allow her to create what she called a cast of characters or a stock company of figures and then repeat them and create these this kind of continuity and where the figures over time in the scroll and freeze works reappear and get recontextualized and and speak to each other, the figures across time periods and across cultural contexts speak to each other in these scrolls. The other, I mean, Sparrow had been very influenced and studied medieval tapestries and fresco painting and prehistoric art and wall painting and Egyptian tomb paintings and codices 
and scrolls and, you know, I mean, I'm probably forgetting a lot of the references, but she had really been inspired by and studied so many historical references and formats like that. It had been, they had imprinted her already when she was studying as an art student. And then in her travels, her and Golub had traveled extensively to Italy and France to to see a lot of the, you know, to Pompeii, for instance, to see the the frescoes and the and the paintings and other places. So they had really, they had been both, I think, quite inspired by that those um, experiences. And Spiro brought these forms directly into her her work. There is an extended, uh, what you call a composite interview of or with Spiro in the catalog. It's kind of composed out of uh, almost a dozen interviews. And one of the, the real highlights of the catalog is her talking about that shift to, to, to zinc plates and, and, and serial image making. Uh, we'll have a link, of course, to, to the catalog on manpodcast.com. Also in the early 1980s, Spiro turns to um, making works that include, if not feature, women from antiquity, uh, figures uh, of women from antiquity. Why was she interested in them as forms, and what did they allow her to do? I think, in, from my understanding, she had a gut reaction to many of these figures that she saw, and <clears throat> some of them saw in part person, but then also, you know, in in research, in, in images and books, etc., but for instance, something like the Sheila Nagig, you know, or Dodo Dancer. Sheila Nagig, you know, is a, a Celtic figure, kind of humorous, bold figure showing her vulvar. It's a fertility figure, and it's also, you know, in some ways kind of a terrifying image that, that Spiro appropriated and, and used extensively in her work. Sheila, Sheila Nagig becomes a, a recurring figure. I mean, there's, from mythologies, there's, there's so many. There's the sky goddess that she she made, which is a combination of different goddess figures. And I think she had a visceral reaction and to many of the figures. But I think on another level, she was desperately searching for images of female empowerment and female strength women as actor, women as activator, and she wasn't finding it in, let's say, her immediate culture. And so she was looking to history, she was looking to antiquity, she was looking everywhere, and she really drew from so many, I'm not even aware of all the sources, but she drew something like, eventually would have about 400 different figures, and they're coming from you know, every possible era and culture culture that she can find these images of of women acting and women athletic women, you know, women in power. And she doesn't take them as is often. I mean sometimes she does, but more often than not, she's doctoring them. She's she's changing them. You know, she's sometimes making male figures into female figures, and she's she's working with them. They're becoming, and I think by 1981, 
or so the figure, the female figure, becomes her vocabulary, becomes her language. She she decides to dispose of text altogether and doesn't use text. She's kind of done with it after finishing Notes in Time, which was a very text-heavy work, and then moves to the figure itself as being a letter form almost, or that becomes her vocabulary. And another uh, recurring form that's important to Sparrow is the severed head, perhaps most famously in what may have been you know, the great work of her late career, Maypole, Take No Prisoners, from 2007, two, two, years, two years before she died. We'll have an image of the work, but it's, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's 253 hand-printed heads on aluminum hanging uh, at the ends of ribbons from an aluminum pole. Severed heads are a long way from the forms of women you were just describing. What about the severed head worked for her as a, a, a discrete thing, and how did she activate it? It's interesting. I mean, I I actually didn't I didn't realize until I took a calculation myself how many severed heads are 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 in the in the works in Paper Mirror. And the maypole techno prisoners that you describe, of course, is where there's the abundance, and that's where you see all these heads, severed heads. But there's also severed heads throughout. I mean, starting starting in the war series, and then we see we see that reoccurring in many of the Artaud works, and and then again in the 1974 works, and there's also in Notes in Time. It's, you know, I, I actually couldn't tell you um, if she had a specific fascination with with that or not, but I think they mean different things in different bodies of work, of course. But starting with the war series, it's a violent, you know, it's a violence and it's a it's a it's what's happening in in the war in Vietnam. And you know, the Maypole Techno Prisoners piece interestingly comes from she she conceived of it as circling back to the vietnam war works and as she calls it cannibalizing her earlier work and this was during in light of the iraq war and in light of at this age that she was at in her early 80s once again being confronted with you know this is what as she put it, this is what our government is doing. This is what our country is doing. And it's this, she was extremely distressed and in a rage about the fact that it seemed as though nothing had changed, you know, after a life of, of, I wouldn't say idealistically, but working, you know, fighting the good fight, et cetera, to see that you're back right where you were I think it was important for her then to to give a really to give expression to that feeling of of shame almost about the violence and and the US involvement, you know, the US war in Iraq. So she she specifically let's say cannibalized her heads in the sense that during the war series she had made a lot of uh, painted a lot of heads. And during that time period of the late 60s, early 70s, painted a lot of heads, and she had what she called a box of heads, paper heads. 
So she used, they were unused, right? So she revisited that material and along with her assistant, Sam Kuntz, they took these heads and translated them into this metal plate, metal heads, which she then, they printed and painted specifically. So it's a different scale than the original paper heads, but it's also the form of the maypole is referring to a 1967 painting from the war series, but it is a maypole with made from an American flag, with an American flag at the top of it, and from that painting hang heads, right, decapitated heads of victims of the war. So she was specifically revisiting that, and as Kuntz and Spiro both talk about it in the in the catalog, when given the chance to by Rob Store in the Venice Biennale in 2007, given the chance to create a new work that would have a, an ample space, she immediately thought of of doing this sculptural installation work. And she had done a couple of more sculptural installation works, but that wasn't that wasn't how she was working primarily. You mentioned that the heads are, are present in the war series, one of the works we talked about earlier, Helicopter Pilot and Eagle. The helicopter is piloted, if you will, by a head, by a, by a severed head. And finally, lots of artists make really intense work, but Sparrow's work is, at least for me, unusually intense and, and unusually intense throughout. As you worked on this show and traveled it to, to two continents, how did the intensity of the work affect you? I'm in step with it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I, I can't say that, you know, it doesn't give me nightmares. It does. I mean, I think, you know, it's Sparrow's work from the intensity of, let's say, her works that really address victimage to the intensity of the celebratory work, which we haven't talked much about, but the the liberation of the female figure from time and historical circumstances, which we see in a lot of her work from the later 80s or throughout the 80s and the 90s, 2000s. And many of these works populate the central gallery in the exhibition. But the intensity of the work feels just right to me. (laughs) I mean, not to say I, I normalize it, but I think it makes it just makes sense, you know. And and Spiro's lifelong intensity, her lifelong self liberation, and holding a mirror to to society, to the society that she was a part of and and spoke to and acted within, makes perfect sense to me for for now as always. I love that. It's a completely thrilling body of work. Julie Alt, thanks so much. No, thank you, Tyler. It's been a pleasure. The Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego presents Trevor Paglin, Sights Unseen, at its downtown location, now through June 2nd. Featuring more than 100 works from the MacArthur Genius Award-winning artist, this mid-career survey traveling from the Smithsonian American Art Museum is the first exhibition to present Paglin's early photographic series alongside his recent sculptural objects and new work with AI. For more information, visit mcasd.org. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Odyssey, Jack Witten Sculpture 1963-2017. 
the first major exhibition dedicated to sculptures by renowned contemporary artist Jack Witten. Each created in Greece over the course of Witten's five-decade career, 40 sculptures made from a diverse spectrum of materials, including wood, marble, copper, bone, fishing wire, and personal mementos, are showcased in this extensive and entirely unknown body of work. On view through May 27th. Visit mfah.org slash Witten for more. Welcome back. My next guest is historian and curator Linda S. Ferber. She's the co-curator, along with Nancy K. Anderson, of The American Pre-Raphaelites, Radical Realists at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. The show examines a group of artists who Ferber and Anderson argue coalesced around the ideas of John Ruskin around and after the American Civil War. Their work frequently used nature and landscape to address contemporary politics via metaphor. It's on view through July 21st. Linda Ferber, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Delighted to be here. Let's start with Thomas Ferrer. Who who was he? When does he arrive in the United States? And what influences does he bring with him? Well, Thomas Farrer was a young artist who uh, was fortunate to work with uh, John Ruskin and Dante Gabriel Rossetti as his teachers at the Working Men's College in London, a progressive, uh, progressive institution dedicated to making sure that young men of limited means um, had the opportunities to train themselves as artists and artisans that would have been denied to them for financial reasons. He was um, also, um, he was immensely uh, politically aware. He was involved with progressive movements. He came to the United States, we believe, um, in uh, 1858, charged with, he already had acquaintances here because he sought out, there were, you know, Ruskin was not a new idea in the United States, as you know, since that really, since the publication of Modern Painters, in 1843, and then very quickly available in the United States as well. His ideas, his values, um, uh, his his moral point of view were very much in sync with many things that were very important to Americans about nature in general. And his influence was immense. And but and so there were people with whom, uh, artists in particular, with whom Farrer was clearly in touch before he came to the United States, want, um, probably being the Hills, John William Hill and John Henry Hill. He arrived and he was, in a sense, a catalyst for long, for long-held beliefs in uh, a, a group of artists. But he was the one who set about, in a way, to to organize the these ideas into, in a sense, um, an artistic and uh, a political and a moral weapon. And in 1863, he was the one who called a group of of artists and um, geologists and critics and uh, collectors and businessmen to his studio, which was actually located in the old NYU building, which was one of our discoveries, which excited us, um, where he also, where Homer and other um, major American artists had studios. They came to his studio, and on January of 1863, they organized the Association for the Advancement of Truth in Art. And that is kind of the beginning of our, of our official story, um, who, who had a mission. Their mission was to reform 
the practice of American art according to the ideas and prescriptions of, of the great British critic um, John Ruskin. And, of course, this being the bicentennial of Ruskin's birth has given our show kind of an, an extra charge, um, which is also exciting. It's sort of recognizing the international influence and the the long-term influence that he had, the immense, immense cultural authority that he had in the United States, which kind of flared up in 1863 with, you might say, Farrer lighting the match. I mean, it was a time of tremendous political turmoil in the United States. Uh, the war was in its uh, second year, and New York was um, a, sort of alive with um, su- um, great support for the Union. They were abolitionists. They were not only anti-slavery. A number of them were, were abolitionists. Farrer himself served. He volunteered in the Union Army for a number of months. And he kind of represents the, you know, the character. He was, there are some wonderful contemporary descriptions of him, one of which, which I really didn't have a chance to publish in the, um, in the, in the catalog. He was recalled by um, Edward Carey, who knew him in the 1860s, as charismatic. I think you can see that. If you, his self-portrait is an extraordinary document on so many different levels, as well as a phenomenal, phenomenal work of art. And you see a young man, very handsome, um, head of curly hair, staring intently at himself in the mirror as he records himself in a, in a drawing on his own lap. And he records his features, and in equal determination and detail, he also records pieces of the furniture that form the interior um, uh, in which he sits, which was a house, um, uh, the family with whom he was boarding during his early time in New York. Um, It's riveting. It's a little disorienting because there are things that are absolutely not finished and there are things that are finished to a degree where you can make out uh, the titles of books. Um, in a bookcase. I mean, the drawings are incredible. He was taught both by Ruskin and by Rossetti, and he is the one artist among the, um, uh, the, the artist members who had an equal interest in figural as well as in landscape work. You know, one of the things that really kind of jumps off of the walls of the exhibition is that uh, these artists are working at a much smaller scale um, than their peers outside the circle, um, artists yeah. such as Kenzet or, or, or Gifford or Innes or certainly Bierstadt, even photographers such as Watkins are working at an, an enormously larger scale. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. why why the um, why the limited scale? I think the limited scale in one way, the modesty of both the scale and in many cases the um, the subject matter itself was um, a withdrawal from that tradition of, um, of conventional exhibition scale landscape paintings, which of course, nevertheless, you do, you do see them, although they're still on a relatively modest scale in the gallery dedicated to the, to the oil paintings, which are overwhelmingly landscape. They also were practicing Ruskin's, you know, Ruskin believed that labor, the investment of labor, um, as well as, as an understanding of what you are recording um, was immensely important, and they recording natural phenomenon, whether it's 
uh, in, the, in the guise of sort of landscape or still life. And many of the landscapes are actually a hybrid, a combination of phenomenal foreground detail that really is a form of growing landscape, living landscape, and then trying to blend it with, um, with a foreground, a background, and a middle ground, which creates the sort of, it's, they're, they're compressed, and they're cropped, and they're strange. And you know that they belong to a larger tradition, and yet you also recognize that there's something very different about them. The other practical issue with a small scale is that it's, it is immensely labor-intensive. And if you then commit yourself to painting at least part of your paintings or all of your paintings out of doors, you commit yourself to coming back to a site repeatedly again and again. There's one painting by Charles Herbert Moore, who in a way is the most phenomenal of these artists in terms of his capacity to produce works of art that seem to have nothing between what he recorded, even on a tiny scale, um, and, and the eye. There is absolutely nothing to suggest a labor trail, which usually with an artist would be the brushstroke, um, which can become an expressive uh, gesture in, in and of itself. They're, they're like looking through a microscope. And he records, his date um, covers the span of four years. So, and he is the one who wrote the famous letter to his, um, his friend and mentor, Thomas Charles Farrer, that he covers about as much canvas in the space of a forenoon, a, a morning session, um, as he can, um, the size of the tip of his thumb. That is the rate at which he worked. So it's, it's a combination of the labor-intensive, um, the commitment to this level of, of recording what you see before you, and also the idea of, of, of a certain degree of humility, um, and the interesting thing is for many of the still lives, of course, are um, um, their life size, essentially. It's, it's the worm's eye view. I, it's the worm's eye view rather than the bird's eye view. You know, the great panoramic span, the ownership that, that Angela Miller so wonderfully called the empire of the eye, um, the, the practice of this, uh, this kind of landscape painting by, um, by Church and by Bierstadt and by others, that the eye, in a sense, you claim ownership of everything before you because your eye flies from side to side, up and down, um, in the immediate foreground and deep into space. They painted the American Pre-Raphaelite landscape is phenomenally detailed, but it's, um, it has a, a, a sort of a, a, a hermetic, uh, it's as if it's hermetically sealed, and it's a very, very different feeling, and especially the ones, as I said, that are a hybrid of, you can see them in the works by Richards. Um, the, uh, um, his forest, this is a forest interior, Path in the Woods, which is about as large a work as, as Richard, and it's one of the larger works in, uh, in the American Landscape Gallery, uh, attempted. And it's, uh, you know, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary exercise um, in every single leaf and every single stone and the pattern of bark on the tree itself. Everything is identifiable. I, um, for, some, for some of these, I sent images to uh, the um, horticultural <clears throat> department at the um, New York Botanical Gardens, and they were, um, they were immensely helpful. And they gave us, you know, um, absolute identifications of many of these of these plants and um, and flowers. So um, it was something. Reception was mixed. 
um, there was admiration for the sheer feat of being able to work like this and produce these extraordinary images. Um, but there was a reservation about the value of what this meant. The, Frank Benson, who was a brilliant, he was a good artist and he was a brilliant critic. And he was, I think he was the best foil to them. He was the most articulate person with a very different point of view. And he wrote a long review of a group of works by Richards. And I think this, this work may have been among them. They were shown in New York, uh, I think, in 1863 or 1864. And he, his, his bottom line with Richards um, was um, too much science and not enough poetry. And this was the main objection. To these works, that they dedicated all to um, the descriptive power of, of bringing to your attention these details, which they, of course, saw as invested with an immense spiritual quality. But for the mainstream critic um, and the mainstream collector, there was um, a scientific quality that for them robbed these works of the poetry that they were used to in the picturesque conventions of the, the sublime and the beautiful, where a landscape was staged to call to your attention certain areas, light was used, weather was used, um, the actual terrain itself. And um, the American Pre-Raphaelite commitment was to sit down and to simply show what was before you and that the investment in the extraordinary detail more than the eye could see. And, and there's where the, part of the interesting sort of exchanges with photography um, come in. This is really more than the eye could see. And um, uh, that in itself was, was the, the, the spiritual side of what they were doing. They were um, uh, documenting, you might say, uh, the, the universe. They were documenting God's work. They were not without a deep spiritual commitment but the look of the works was seen as, as dry. The colors were seen as, as harsh. Um, the, the defiance of, um, of deep, deep, deep distances, they are remarkably, you know, they're read up and down, and you know you're supposed to read it into the distance, but somehow there's a resistance to the eye. There's a tension in these works that is really quite extraordinary for all of these reasons and for the fact that they put themselves forth as the answer to um, a tradition that they damned um, uh, made them. Their voice was very loud in the in the in the um, in the short period of time uh, in the mid '60s that they were um, uh, abroad in the land. The their magazine, the New Path, was known. Um, it was nicknamed the New Wrath um, because they were very very outspoken. In two things, they were outspoken in their opinions about individual works of art by the most hallowed names of the mainstream landscape school, and they were also outspoken in the fact that they thought the practice of criticism in the United States was appalling. Uh, they, they, they said it essentially uh, consisted of uh, long descriptions, positive, of what a work of art looked like with no critical distance with no critical point of view, and they were seen as uh, essentially puff pieces. Well, they were right about that. <laughs> they were right about that, but those, those 
long descriptions um, are of great use to we modern art historians because it enables us in many cases to nail something. But it is true that um, uh, everything was seen as positive because Americans were um, deeply historically self-conscious then, and they saw, um, you know, um, competent work of American scenery um, uh, as immensely as as uh, as an occasion for celebration of a maturing American art form, and landscape was seen as the American subject matter. And it was just at that moment um, when you might say the Hudson River School tradition was at its ripest that a group comes along determined to take them down. And, it, and so in this sort of mechanics of intergenerational um, competition, um, of uh, the maturity of having uh, an academic tradition against which now you could rebel, because the, the Hudson River School was built on the conventions, the picturesque conventions of the sublime and the beautiful, which were immensely fertile, and they were based in the works of the great gods were uh, Claude Lorraine, Salvatore Rosa, and of course those were uh, precisely the artists that Ruskin sought to take down in modern painters. And so they, the substitute, you might say, Thomas Cole had the uh, misfortune of, um, of mastering these, the sublime and the beautiful, these, these two modes of painting and applying them to recognizable American subject matters, which is absolutely and justifiably the source not only for his, um, for his fame as a, sort of the father of the Hudson River School, but also for the, uh, the longevity of the tradition. I mean, there were three generations of painters who fed, you might say, um, uh, at that pool with great success. And that was, what, that was what Americans were used to seeing. So these works, and this is where we could say the modernity comes in, these works, they seemed to be in the same universe, but they were entirely different. And the differences um, were not overwhelmingly um, uh, recognized as positive. One of the, the differences, nope, let me, <laughs> transitions, you know, um, mm-hmm. One of the sort of differences um, is the subject of a really interesting essay in the catalog. Uh, it's by Barbara Dayer Galati, and it's yes. about the iconography used by the artists here. And yes. one of the subjects she addresses is flowers, uh, mm-hmm. paintings of flowers. So why were the Pre-Raphaelites interested in flowers? And does it have anything to do with the widespread American cultural interest at the time, from Thoreau to Church in a very different way, to Watkins to Muir? in botanical taxonomical specificity? Well, it's definitely, it's part and parcel of that. It's, it's um, I'm looking here at a quote from, <clears throat> from Ruskin, uh, saying, every urban flower of the field has its specific distinction and perfect beauty. He also, on the geological side, he said, quote, every class of rock, earth, and cloud has to be understood with geologic and meteorologic accuracy. So they were, you know, they were sort of between the scientific traditions, and um, but they were also aware of the general what we what we call the language of the flowers. Um, that these, um, that many of these particular specimens, you can say, also came out of other traditions. They came out of um, a sort of romantic poetry. They came out of scriptural traditions, the lilies of the field. You probably noticed that a number of these, that the, the day lily or the Canada lily was growing, not cut, not the traditional nature morte, but you might say nature vivante. 
shown in its environments growing, um, uh, growing in nature and uh, um, generally, you know, sort of the humble, the humble flower, the wildflower. These were seen as, um, as uh, symbolic of uh, a kind of spiritual uh, humility and uh, the flower uh, uh, by the wayside. This is something that, that Ruskin certainly embraced and Americans followed in that. Uh, but there are also works, as Barbara points out, um, that were invested with um, certain uh, political meanings. There are, certain, there are certain landscapes that I think can be read as, as, as parables of, uh, of wartime concerns. And I think Richard, no, not at all, not at all. But they had a, particularly, a particular way of expressing it, um, and uh, an, shall we say a non-figural way. And I think the reason, one of the reasons why Richard's neglected corner of a wheat field, we chose it for the cover image is we felt that it, it, it represents a sort of a masterful blend of those two issues. The notion of, um, of the iconography embedded in, in some of these works, and where the, the weeds are the invaders, in a sense in the immediate foreground, and they are all botanically specific, I can tell you that, anatomically correct and all the rest of it. Um, and they, they're moving through a fence in disrepair, and behind them hovers the, you know, the wheat field in whose corner they are you know, they, gathering, you might say. And um, for, a, for a wartime audience, this would have had a political resonance. Uh, wheat represented order, good governance, and um, you know rows of rows of grain stalks, while the weeds were, you might say, you know, clambering in to, um, and their uh, their uh, vigor and energy was you know, represented a, a threat to the a threat to the cultivated crop, and that would have been quickly translated during the war years to um, you know, to the Union as standing for order and secession as standing very much for something else, but something else powerful that had to be that had to be contained. So about Ruskin as as an influence, how how do or how might we separate Ruskin as an influence from Ralph Waldo Emerson as an influence? Because there are certainly some shared interests in in nature, without question. Uh, you know, in the eighteen thirty six and in the eighteen forty four natures, um, one's a book, one's an essay, one, mm -hmm. one's a book length essay, and one's an essay. <laughs> Yes. Um, and so in Nature and in subsequent essays and lectures, Emerson urges Americans, pointedly including artists and poets, um, to primary experience, to direct observation, to look closely at nature, to truth. Um, and, and there's some of that here, too. Um, so how Definitely. do we, how, how do we, how might we divine um, artists thinking about Ruskin and not Emerson or thinking about Emerson? Which I, I think, think they were, one of the, the power of Ruskin's sort of moral authority and cultural authority in the United States was precisely because his language, because people knew Ruskin, Americans knew Ruskin through his language primarily. Later on, they, you know, they, you know, examples of his own work as an artist, examples of English pre-Raphaelite work that he championed in 1851 actually came to the United States. And those could be seen, some of those works, those, those iconic works, like the Huguenot Lover, were known um, and widely circulated as engravings in the United States. But it was Ruskin's word. It was his prose. It was this extraordinary rhetoric, 
this capacity to combine, you might say, scientific observation and, um, and religious fervor as a, you know, as a kind of um, uh, really revelation. This appealed deeply to Americans precisely because um, the strong cult of nature, the, the strong tradition was here. So it was, um, uh, it's not an either or an or. Uh, I would say that you can trace the influence of Ruskin, certainly in when Asher B. Durand in the mid-40s begins to tighten up his, um, he first he began to paint more directly from nature, his, his studies from nature, and he began to tighten the surface of his, uh, of his botanical and geological um, uh, descriptive so that you could really understand um, what you were looking at. Not, it's not just the foreground rock. It is a specimen of the kind of boulders that you find in a particular part of the Catskills. And so it's a matter of channeling both um, uh, an indigenous tradition, the one that you, that you mentioned, um, and uh, an infusion of extraordinarily religious, moralizing rhetoric that Americans uh, warmed to. And they warmed to it essentially because it was, it was familiar to them. There's a wonderful um, uh, quote that, from Clarence Cook, and this is 1855, where he wrote, um, we love Ruskin's love of nature, we love his love of God, and this is clipped out of a much longer sentence that goes on to say, we love, we love, we love, we love. And it becomes a kind of a, of a, of, of poetry. And, and it's, he's also channeling the way Ruskin writes. To read his prose and his descriptions of nature um, and his dictating to the artist what, what's important, what he needs to pay attention to, both um, intellectually and, um, and descriptively, is, um, it's like, I mean, he, they're sermons. They're like sermons. And I think this was a kind of writing that, um, that appealed immensely to Americans. So I don't think we should see them as, as different traditions. I, I think we should see one of them feeding, um, feeding into others and sort of making them, in a way, even, even more powerful. And in Ruskin's Elements of Drawing, which was published in 1857, and which is um, a slender volume, it's, it's still in print, it's wonderful, and it is, it is addressed to, to the artist. It is a how-to manual. It was his effort to reform drawing manuals and take them away from conventional picturesque models um, and, um, and order the artist to go. The, the first one of these lessons is wonderful. He says to the, to the would-be artist, he says, go out into the road, into your garden or into the road, and pick up the first stone that you see and bring it in because you're not ready to deal with it out of doors yet and draw it until you are able to capture it it's every, you know, every characteristic from every different, different point of view. And if you can draw that stone, then you're ready to move on in, in, in a sense. You know, then you can draw anything. And um, I always refer to, from myself, um, uh, the elements of drawing is what I call modern painter's light. It's just a condensation um, of much of the thought and the prescriptive nature of modern painters into um, a, a book you can take out into the field with you. So it was through the word that Ruskin was known. Of course, he never came to the United States, but he was known well, very, very well here um, through his language, just as Emerson and Thoreau, I mean, their language um, in writing about nature is is extraordinary as well, and William William Cullen Bryant. Um, so Ruskin's ideas 
fed into um, pre-existing um, uh, cultural concerns, religious concerns, spiritual concerns in the United States, which made him immensely powerful on, in many different spheres. And so we're, in a sense, just taking a look at his influence on a specific group of artists who were self-claimed. This is the thing about writing about these artists. They proclaim themselves to be um, his disciples in America. No, that's, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, you know, one of the things that I kept thinking as I read the catalog and went through the show was, you know, Nature is 36. Um, it was initially much better read in England than it was um, in the yeah. United States. Um, yeah. and, and Ruskin's Modern Painters is what, 43, 44, 43? 43 um, was volume one. Yeah. <laughs> as it were to be six, the last in 1860. Yeah, and there's so much so of that. Five, Emer- rather. And there's so much of that Emersonian emphasis on primary experience and direct observation. Absolutely. Um, in Ruskin. Um, I mean, I think the, the American artists looking most at Emerson are mostly, you know, non pre Raphaelites. Although when I see Ferrer doing, um, uh, when I, when I see Ferrer doing a, Mm -hmm. um, uh, a reflection painting, I I think immediately of Emerson. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's an, it's an, it's an, uh, 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 fascinating confluence of um transatlantic um intellectual Absolutely. discourse um it is and that's we were uh, you know of course when you do an exhibition it's it's about visual culture um it's about works of art but what we wanted to do and particularly in the book and and as we were able to do it in the exhibition to um introduce you know the the sort of the broader and the larger ideas and and to also secure this brief interlude in the context of its social and political and historical moment. And um, we have the minutes of the association as well. So we know everyone who attended every meeting, um, some who hosted the meetings, who were actually elected as members and who, you know, and who came um, to hear the lectures and the poetry that was read. And we have, uh, there's a timeline. This is Nancy has just great idea. I mean, we we have a timeline of those particular years around immediately around the existence of the association itself. Of course, in, in the catalog, I should say. Yeah. yeah, in the catalog, yes. And we also have a section which we call the players because we wanted to bring to the attention of the reader the many non-artists. I mean, the artists, of course, but also there were many people from many other you know walks of life. Businessmen, um, uh, designers, uh, collectors, uh, lawyers, um, who were scientists, you know, engineers, who were also also members. And there's just a, a three or four lines. Um, some of these people are well known, like Clarence King, of course, and others are not. And we've managed to to pull together. There are very few blanks. We we managed to pull together a little bit with some bibliography because we want to we want to encourage. Um, scholars and others, I mean, to begin to investigate some of these other individuals. You know, this is just kind of putting down a footprint. Um, and the, the new path now, um, small journal, um, so small that it was actually overlooked by Frank Luther Mott when he did his great uh, History of the American magazine. Um, it's, it isn't there, um, uh, but it, it is now um, in digitized form, and it's available through, through JSTOR. So uh, that the magazine itself is um, is an extraordinary 
extraordinary resource. And although it had a limited circulation, apparently it had an important circulation. Um, we have the final list, the final meeting. They list the subscribers, the current subscribers, and James Jackson Jarvis is there. And there were others, apparently, supposedly people <clears throat> did did subscribe or they did secure copies of issues of the magazine, but it was so controversial that not everyone wanted their name on the subscription list. So th these... Um, you know, beginning. You know, so I think that we, I think we are justified in in the issue of radical. Um, you know, we thought a lot about it because when you look at these paintings, when you walk in, you, what is radical about these? But what we wanted to do was explain why they were um, presented as radical and why they were received uh, um, as radical. We also wanted to introduce the idea of what what, what there is a legacy. The, the legacy that has been recognized and is reaffirmed in, by this exhibition, you'll notice that the works on, works on paper uh, predominate, and watercolors um, definitely is the medium, and it was the signature medium. And this is, this is absolutely attributable to Ruskin's adv advocation for the watercolor medium as an extraordinary, extraordinary important medium, not only for the study, and this is coming out of the, the topographical and the scientific traditions as well, um, making a, a careful record in the field, pre-photography, but even post-photography, because there are some things that have been captured by descriptive, um, in descriptive sort of topographical skills that um, still could not be captured, you know, through through photography. And of course, the great thing then was color. But um, uh, this, every American pre-Raphaelite artist. Um, Worked, they worked in oil, but they worked in watercolor, and it was presented as an exhibition, as, as a medium, not just for the amateur, not just for the lady painter, but for the serious artist, not only for study, but also for exhibition purposes. And there had been a, a parallel effort, really since the 1850s, since the, um, the exhibition of the Industry of All Nations, which was the first World's Fair to be held to, 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 in, in the United States, in, in New York. And a group of, of early um, watercolor painters uh, endeavored to set up an exhibition, you know, showing uh, American prowess coming right out of the English tradition, of course, in the watercolor medium. And for 15 or 20 years, there were a cup, there were many efforts to sort of launch um, an exhibition venue dedicated to the work on watercolor, modeled, of course, on the great, you know, English organizations and on the, and on the it's an Anglo-American tradition for sure, just like landscape. But it was Ruskin's advocation, 1857, and then the um, uh, the practice of the medium, which was less, which was less controversial um, critically than the practice of landscape painting in oil. I mean, there you were really taking on the big guns. Um, but they were, you know, they were admired as watercolor painters, even if their subject matter wasn't particularly admired as, you know, being insignificant. Um, but it wasn't, of course, to them, and it wasn't if you sort of, you know if you follow the, the script that they were following. And in 1866, the, you know, the American Watercolor Society finally was, was organized. And that's, you know, that I think is one of the major legacies of, the, uh, of the, this particular movement, the American Pre-Raphaelites. The other, which is more difficult, although it's not, it is there. There is, and an, they, these works are, as I said before, they're, um, they're close up, they're cropped and they're com they're uh, compressed, and there is an equal attention to detail all the way across the field. There and this is um, it's extraordinary. It's it's surreal. It's also 
immensely decorative in um, in the in the surface qualities of many of these works, and particularly it comes out in their amazing stipple technique of the watercolors. And um, this is these are the early years of the beginning of the the aesthetic movement in the United States. And Clarence Cook, um, the you know the the man who wielded the club for the American Pre-Raphaelites, he, well, he later wielded the club for the Society of American Artists in 1877. If there was a progressive group who wanted to break away from the National Academy of Design, he was their Ruskin. He was going to be their spokesperson. But he's also a major player, as you probably know, in the evolution of the American aesthetic movement. His book, The House Beautiful, um, and his smaller book, um, What Shall We Do With Our Walls? Those are sort of two Bibles of the, uh, of the aesthetic movement. Many of the articles and the chapters in, that, in those books of the 1870s, um, you'll find articles in The New Path where he's talking about the importance of good household design. It was very important for middle-class people who couldn't afford you know, high-end uh, production uh, to be able to access honest and good design uh, for everything in the house, from furniture to utensils. This is a real harbinger of the concerns of the uh, American aesthetic movement. And, of course, there were you know, the, the parallels, uh, of course, in, in England as well. But there is a real American genesis to this. And it comes out of, if you scan the pages of The New Path, you'll see many articles dedicated to um, the importance of, um, of affordable and honest craftsmanship for middle classes rather than um, mechanically produced. I mean, it's, it's, it's um, a protest against the increasing production of, um, of works of sloppy design. And this is, um, uh, this I think is one of the, again, the long-term legacies. Uh, I think it's one of the currents that fed into the American aesthetic movement. There's a, if you, particularly if you look at the works of Henry Roderick Newman, and we, did, we dedicated our last gallery to the last Ruskinian. Um, he actually, Fidelia, Fidelia Bridges, which I want to talk about the American, the women who were part of the circle, um, died in 19, I think in 1923, but uh, Newman died in 1917. So um, a number of these artists survived um, in, into the 20th century and were still, uh, were still producing. There were artists who moved on to other things, like uh, Charles Herbert Moore, whom Charles um, uh, Elliot Norton, who was Ruskin's great friend in the United States um, and collector of English pre-Raphaelite as well as American pre-Raphaelite works, finally lured Moore in 1871, I think, to come and teach at, um, at Harvard's Lawrence School, scientific um, school, which was their engineering division. And, uh, he did, and Moore had decided he really could not make a living as a painter because his rate of production was, uh, was far too slow. And so he, uh, he accepted the invitation, and he introduced the Ruskinian technique of drawing um, into the world of American higher education. And uh, Norton, um, who was among the first, we might call art historians in the United States, he later recruited um, more to come and join him at Harvard College, where they taught undergraduates not only art history, but what was called the laboratory method, where you also um, learn to draw. You also learn to apply uh, yourself um, in, in the field itself to increase your understanding of what goes into the making of a work of art. So the intellectual um, sort of legacy of this group is really, is really pretty amazing. 
Fidelia Bridges is, is uh, particularly great. We'll have um, some some images of her up on uh, of her work up on podcast dot com. Her her flowers are uh, are among my favorite things in in American art. Linda Ferber, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.